Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week we want to be able to bring you information and or guests to help really transform your life, to help you to live on purpose, to be more purposeful in whatever you do. Maybe they have some insights, some uh, knowledge, some expertise that will help us to live more on purpose and with more passion. And today is no expert. I am so pleased to have a friend of mine, a colleague, where we spent quite a bit of time together in different events in Philadelphia on a mastermind group that we joined or were part of together. And so this individual is a doctor, but he also was one of the very few people in the world who has successfully climbed Mount Everest. And so I'd like you to welcome my friend, Dr. Tim Warner, to the show. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Keyes, my pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, let's just go with Ken and Tim today, and uh, that's that's awesome. Now, uh, Tim, you you're actually a, a doctor in chiropractic medicine, correct? Correct. Yep. So, um, you know, we're going to really do two because Tim has a couple of books. One, uh, Lessons from Everest, and the other one is Feet, Fork, and Fun, which really is around your passion for helping others to live a vibrant life. But just let's just help uh, the listeners, as I always do with each show, uh, to get them to know who is Tim Warren, pardon me, what, you know, your journey and, and what that has been for you. Okay, well, let me just kind of start at the beginning. I, I blame it all on my very adventurous parents. Uh, my dad was a school teacher, and he built uh, uh, solar homes uh, in his spare time, and eventually... Really? Is that, yeah. that was before solar homes were in. Oh, it was a, he was a pioneer. It was back, he didn't make any money, it turns out, but he was just ahead of the curve back in the early 70s. And the, the style and, and house building back then was uh, contemporary homes. And they lended themselves, their roof lines lended themselves very well to, like, uh, to having a kind of a, what we'd call right now a rudimentary active solar system. Mm. And it was great. It just didn't work that well and it didn't take off. And uh, but uh, he uh, enjoyed that much better than teaching, actually. And my mom was a part-time registered nurse, and so uh, we didn't have that much money. And every time that we had a school vacation or a summer vacation, we would get in a rusty pickup truck, and we would go to northern New England uh, and camp and hike uh, as little, little kids. Mm. And then one year in 1975, we got in that same rusty pickup truck, and we drove all the way across the country and went to all the national parks, which was in a pickup truck. Wow. A rusty pickup truck with a cap on the back, three kids and, and mom and dad, and really left a, a big impression on me. I just fell in love with nature. I fell in love with hiking and camping. Wasn't into climbing at the time because it, it, climbing is is using uh, ropes and para, climbing paraphernalia and climbing in, in areas where you could, if you fall, the results would be dire. So we didn't do that, but uh, I graduated to that. Uh, after I got out of graduate school and uh, settled into my practice and needed a way to blow off some steam. And I was always an athlete. I started to run cross-country and track when I was very young, 12 years old, and it kind of never stopped in my pursuit of, uh, of, uh, of personal challenges like that. So, well, you did your first marathon when you were 16 years of age, did you not? I, I did, yeah, and which was not very bright because uh, – uh, my, it was after the cross country season, and, and three or four members of my team did it, and we were all, you know, barely just teenagers, and uh, the oldest of us was 17. And we kind of got a little competitive, and I ran a fast time, but I promptly had a stress fracture in the largest bone in my lower leg, and I missed my senior year of, of cross country and track because of that. So it wasn't the brightest thing in the world, but back in 1976, <laughs> there was no knowledge of proper training or or anything. So we were we were just trailblazers. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was an experience. Well, and, and we were all young once, uh, Tim. Have we not been? 
And, uh, you know, what, what got you going into chiropractic medicine? What was the driver around that? I mean, you have uh, educators as, uh, as a parent. Uh, where did that come from? Well, you know, again, it comes from my, my background in athletics. And I had, uh, you know, again, I was really devoted to running and, and pretty much going to school at that stage just to be able to compete in the cross country and track team. I was pretty uninspired by academics until I was in uh, probably around 17 years old, about junior year. And because of injuries and, and accidents, uh, I just was unable to run one step. And I went everywhere, went to all these so-called sports medicine docs and, mm. and was getting shot up full of cortisone on a regular basis, not progressing at all, not being able to run. And finally, some friends of mine in the running community said, hey, man, you got to go see this chiropractor. And it was the first time I'd ever heard the word. I had no idea what a chiropractor was. But I, mm. And the one reason that I went is because the guy ran. So I thought, man, maybe this guy has some insight because he runs. So I went to him and had no idea what, I, what was going on, and he did a, uh, an adjustment on me, a correction of the alignment, and it was like a miracle. Uh, I had not run one step in nine months, and, I, and he said, okay, now go ahead out and run, but don't go too far, and, and I ran five miles that day, and I had been unable to run a step for the previous nine months. I was blown wow. away, and I had twinges of pain, but no pain. And uh, I, I, I was just blown away, and I, I, and I think it was only on my second or third visit to him uh, later that I was walking into his office, and I, and I knew I was going to do something in healthcare at that stage. Mm-hmm. I was studying to be a physical therapist at the time, and I was like, I'm doing this. What am I crazy? This is I'm chosen for this. So uh, I think I had my hand mm-hmm. on the. the knob of his office walking in and I had that insight and it kind of led me to believe that uh, really big shifts in one's life can happen in short periods of time. Almost Isn't it though where one single event, if your friends had not recommended that doctor to you, right. what would have been the trajectory of our life? Isn't that interesting? Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Now, how old were you then, Tim, when you all of a sudden had this insight to shift into chiropractic medicine? 17. No way. Wow. And you said you were already sort of heading towards the physio side or sports medicine. Okay. Right. So when did you become and complete your training? Uh, well, I, compl- I went to the to Rhode Island College, which is four year. Got my BA there. Uh, did my pre chiropractic, pre med work. I mean, the first two years of of undergrad is the same in in med and also chiropractic. It's just the second two years of med school that kind of branches off. So, you just had to get an undergrad degree and do all your prereqs, which I did at Rhode Island College. And then I uh, I only I only applied to one chiropractic school. I wanted to go to the same place my chiropractor went to because I wanted that. I wanted what mm-hmm. he had. So I went out to the great state of Iowa, and I spent the next four years out there, Palmer College of Chiropractic, and came back to Rhode Island and set up practice in 1987 uh, and uh, developed a a very successful practice and really enjoyed my time there. But I had uh, and spent 25 years in that before I I moved on from that and uh, sold that practice. And uh, the reason that I sold the practice was the biggest frustration that I had in practice and I had wonderful patients and 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 and, uh, and and very very busy practice awesome practice but I was frustrated that I was unable to inspire uh, to a great extent patients to lift a pinky finger to improve their to get a little exercise in or to improve their nutrition or to work on their headspace Mm-hmm. I was, and I, so I changed my approach multiple times, and I just couldn't seem to, to make it click. And then towards the end of that time, I was doing a lot of, of speaking and lecturing and giving presentations and seminars across the country. And uh, I started to formulate some things that became my second book, Feet, Fork, and Fun, How to Fail Your Way to, to Fitness. And uh, so I, I, I didn't have time to do both, so I decided to sell the practice and, and kind of get a bigger audience, which I'm happy to have right now, uh, write this book 
and uh, teach that stuff and hopefully make a dent in the world's uh, health care because we're not in a good path right now with uh, wellness and health care. And with all we know and with, the, with an increased technology, we're not on a great path. We're losing basic, simple understanding of wellness and health care. And I, I need to do whatever I can do to stop that, that slide. Well, you and me both, and so you know that we are aligned with that 100%. Absolutely. And I'm going to come to that in a minute, but I want to digress for a second, Tim, to go back into this quest to uh, hike, (laughs) climb, make it to the top of Everest. Like, what? Where where did that come from? I mean, you're running, you know, doing a marathon and going to the top of Everest, and you successfully reached the top, correct? I did on my second attempt. And how many people do you know? How many people have done that? About four thousand have done that since 1953. Right, since uh, Mr. Uh, was it was his name Edward Hillary? Edmund Hillary. And, Edmund uh, Hillary, Henry right? Norgay. Mm-hmm. He actually proved that you could do it. But right, he was there's like four thousand who have done it, but I, there are way more who have attempted it. Oh, is that, that's that's right, and and uh, you know, and again, I was over there earlier this month at Everest Base Camp, which is a, is about a two week walk from uh, the capital of Nepal, mm-hmm. Kathmandu, and I had a good friend who was there. My former climbing partner was climbing Latsi, which shares the the base camp with Mount Everest, and mm-hmm. uh, that 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 base camp's at seventeen thousand five hundred feet. So, hence, that's the the reason you take two weeks to uh, to gradually move up there. So and you to acclimatize yourself and get your exactly. system settled for that. What caused you to kind of put this on the goal list? Well, uh, in the early '90s, you know, again, I I talked a little bit about my family's background and my hiking and everything with the family, and then uh, my running background, and I also. A few years I was doing triathlons and everything. So I was always into exploring new horizons with my physical fitness and just seeing what, exploring the edges of, of my personal uh, potential, which is a, kind of a hobby of mine. But I started to climb bigger mountains. I started to do a lot of reading and mountaineering. Re- mountaineering started to uh, appeal to me. I would go up to New Hampshire, which is a state, two states north of here. A lot of great winter climbing. I learned to ice climb. I learned to rock climb. I uh, learned in mountaineering up there on Mount Washington, which is the home of the world's worst weather. The highest recorded <laughs> wind speed is up there, 233 miles an hour. So uh, I would hire guides to learn, and then I went out to Mount Rainier and took a six-day mountaineering course out there on Mount Rainier. And then I just kind of, I loved it out on Mount Rainier, and I thought, you know, once a year I'm going to go to some big mountain, and I'm going to uh, try to climb it. So that was a goal in the uh, mid-90s. So I went to Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, and, you know, it's not a technical climb, but it was really cool, and I got up to 20,320 feet. I thought that was awesome. Uh and um, then I decided to go to McKinley. I'm sorry, McKinley is 20,320 feet. Uh, Kilimanjaro is 19,340 feet. So, uh, of course, I knew that, Tim. Of course, you knew that. I knew someone, <laughs> well, you probably didn't get it, but one of your listeners is probably on the ball, and they would call me. Yeah, them. that's right. We don't want to mess with them, right? Smart. You have brilliant listeners, so we know those uh, guys. Of course, we do. So anyway... Uh, so then I, and I didn't make it. I was with a big guided group on, on McKinley in Alaska, but it was a, a beautiful, still to this day, the most beautiful mountain I've ever been on. And I, I went back later, uh, the, uh, two years later and was able to luckily get to the top and down safely off that. And, uh, did a lot of climbing in Yosemite, a lot of rock climbing in Yosemite, went out to the, uh, the, the, the Teton range and the part of the Rockies in Wyoming and did a lot of climbing out there. And uh, then thought, maybe, just maybe, I have the stuff to climb Mount Everest. But I knew I just needed some, a little bit more training, so I went down to Argentina. The biggest mountain in the Western Hemisphere is a mountain called Aconcagua in the Andes Range. Mm-hmm. And so went did an expedition there, made it to the top. And one thing that happened on the way down from there, it's no great surprise to me that I could get my carcass up to the top of a big mountain, but here's what happened on the way down. One of our group badly misjudged his energy level, and he collapsed at the summit of this very, very remote mountain, 23,000 feet in the air. 
And, you know, the cavalry's not coming for you on mountains. So this guy mm. blew it. He was exhausted. So we had to rally. There was a, I think we had a team of five uh, in various you know, various levels of physical fitness. But I was happy that we kind of rallied and we, we took his stuff and we short roped him, tied a short rope to his uh, climbing harness and kind of dragged him down. And he was just ready to give up every step. And, and so hours and hours and hours it took to get down. And in mountaineering, it's not one little thing that happens that can cause disasters. It's usually two or three little things that combine. Mm. And because we were so slow, we ran into a storm. And it was a brutal, near whiteout storm that we barely pulled ourselves out of. And we were able to get this guy down and safe. And at the end of that experience, I thought, you know, I've got the stuff for it because so I've got the stuff for Everest and not only can I get myself to the top of the mountain, but I can organize and I can uh, have the emphasis on safety and teamwork. And I thought I'm ready. So I went in my first attempt at Mount Everest in 2007 and uh, didn't make it, fell uh, victim to the typical things that can go wrong with based on the high altitude uh, virus and cold, uh, and I became ill. I got a lung infection and a throat infection and blah, blah, blah. But so there's no I, way if your body's not 100%, you're going to make no. it to the top. No, and I made an attempt, a semi-attempt with uh, my good climbing partner, uh, my Sherpa friend, uh, Pinjo Sherpa, but we made the correct call to turn our sorry butts around and go home, and it was uh, heartbreaking because there was a there's a, there's a lot involved with that. Uh, I had put a year of training into it. I had uh, just made sure that everything was fine in my office. I had a good, st- my staff was keeping the office open. All my patients were taken care of. My family was taken care of. It was all, every, I had sponsors that had kind of foot the bill for the, for the, uh, the attempt. And I was mm. kind of upset that I was not giving them what they had hoped for. And then what I learned from that was that your mind can plays a role so much with your physical health because I had such I was kind of overwhelmed with the 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 magnitude of climbing Mount Everest Mm -hmm. that it lowered I feel that it lowered my healing ability and made me more susceptible to the to the uh, the the physical issues that I did have I explain that Tim a little bit for the listeners um, it was overwhelming, so it lowered my ability to recover or my immunity system. The, the shortest, How does that happen? Yeah, I would say that the higher the, the negative stress level, the lower your body's resistance to disease. Mm. So, so are we responsible, Tim, for letting that into our system, like our mindset? Exactly. I think that the, uh, one of the, the things that wise people do and I did not do it that first year, but I certainly did it the next year when I was luckily enough successful to climb Mount Everest, was realize the wisdom that how you think affects your body. So how you think, uh, being aware of, of your thoughts as important parts to your own immunity and to your own health is, mm. is one of the things that wise people realize. And you so, picked that up as a result of... Just paying attention to that first attempt on Everest? I did, and then, and, and, uh, you know, kind of uh, just thinking about the, the reasons for the failure afterwards, uh, I realized, and I had observed that with other people on mountains when they got uh, super stressed, that they'd get a migraine or their knee would go out or something like that. So I'd observed that with other people, but then here I am, it's happening to me. And I, did, I wasn't aware of it at the time. Only in the months after that did I realize, wow, I fell for the same mm. thing. I was overwhelmed. You know, I had read so many books about Mount Everest. I, had, I was like, oh, you know, I, do I have the stuff for this? Do I have what it mm. takes? And I was just overly stressed and uh, never felt strong during that expedition. And hence my resistance was low and, and boom. Mm. But... And- We'll come back to that because I know that sure. you have it in your second book here. Yeah. So um, then, so you say that it was an unsuccessful attempt to the top. Right. Then what uh, what happened after that to go round two? 
Well, uh, coming down from the mountain, I, I was really ill, and I really had to go downhill just to, to save my lung tissue. So it takes three days to hike out of base camp and go 40 miles to where you can catch a flight to Kathmandu. And the first day, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm never going to climb again. I hate climbing. I hate everything, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And then I stayed in a beautiful Sherpa family's home that night at a tea house and they served me wonderful cups of tea and they talked with me and uh, that made a, it was, it just warmed my soul. And the next day I got up and I had a little war in my head the next day. I hate mountains on one hand, but on the other hand, I'm, my mind was starting to say, hey, but if you train a little bit better and if you, maybe you should read some books on sports psychology to kind of figure this mental thing out a little bit. Uh, and wait a minute, I hate mountains. I never want to climb again. So I had this war in my head mm. that second day climbing out. And then I stayed at another wonderful Sherpa's uh, home that evening, and they were so nice. And again, it warmed my soul to be with these beautiful people. And the next day I got up, completely game over. I was all in. I am going back to Mount Everest next year Mm. and doing my best to get to the top. So it was kind of an interesting um, looking back on those three days. It was just they each had to fall into place like they did. And by the way, Ken, you can only climb Mount Everest once a year. It goes from the season goes from between March and uh, June 1st. Uh, because of the weather, you have to have that many weeks in there to acclimatize and to gradually climb and go down. But the weather clears on Mount Everest between four and 10 days in late May. And that's when you, you have to have your body and mind uh, ready and you go for the tops whenever that weather clears. Mm. So, Does it get uh, crowded to... with all the people that are attempting to do it now? Well, uh, it, it does if um, you just – the thing is there's, there could be three or four or 500 people in, in base camp waiting to go for the top when the weather clears. And my, my strategy was wait till the very end of the, to the season, not to the very end because you can get caught in the bad weather, but I wasn't going to be involved with the, with the hordes that just couldn't hold their horses back and were just going for it as soon as the weather cleared a little bit. I was going to let those people go. And I advised, this year I was talking with other people who were just couldn't stand it anymore. They'd been there for two months and they wanted to climb. And I get that. But just needed to have some patience. Mm-hmm. Let the let the hordes uh, go at the very beginning, and then wow! When I when I summited, there was only twenty people uh, at the high camp of Mount Everest, and that was awesome. And uh, so there was no no hitch in the getty up at all anywhere along. It was just a beautiful thing. So what happened in uh, round number two where you were successful? One of you know there. Are- Billions of people in the world, and you're you're one of a handful who have made it to the top. What was different in round two for you? Well, I would say the biggest thing was I realized that my mind was not helping me the first time. So what I did is I just uh, collected uh, every sports psychology book that I could read, and uh, I took I just kind of devoured everything in there, and I learned that sports psychology comes down to one word, visualization. Mm. And the first year, I could never see myself at the top of Mount Everest. I just, oh, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I can do it. I could never see myself successful and at the top of Mount Everest. But the second year, that whole second year, I distilled and went through uh, a whole process where I would be able to have that visualization. And by the way, my visualization that second year was not just to get to the top because the little downside of climbing Mount Everest is that 56% of the deaths that happen from climbers happen by people who got to the top and died on the way down. Mm. So my visualization was summit and safe return. So my visualization was touching the top of the world, getting those you know, being having that experience and then having a pulse on all my fingers and toes and walking into base camp successful. So that was my big visualization. That's what I got from all those books that I, that I studied. And uh, it worked. And, you know, you never know if you're going to get to the top because a thousand things can go wrong. Some you have control of and, and most you don't. However, it all just kind of fell into place. 
And I won't say without any hitch, because I did have some trouble getting down, and you can read that in my, in my first book, Lessons from Everest. Um, I had trouble at various times, but basically, uh, I learned the lessons and, 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 and put those into place, and uh, it all mm. worked out. Well, that's awesome, sir, and congratulations on uh, being one of the few. Uh, just quickly before we move to your new book, uh, these 50 per- 50% plus who die on the way down, what's, what are one or two things that contributed to those I think situations? One, one of those, well, there's exhaustion, right. uh, of, of course, but I think, again, it, it comes back to mental focus, and, and a lot of people take the eye off the ball when they're at the top of a mountain. They, they see that at the, as the end. Right. In fact, when you're at the top of the mountain, you're halfway. Right. You still have to get down. Uh, so a lot of things can go wrong, and people start to uh, maybe uh, you know check out a little bit mentally. Whenever I get to the top of a mountain, I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death because I know I've got to go down. And mm. every, every fiber of my being going down is focused on safety. It, it's, uh, you know, I have this mental dashboard in front of me. And I'm constantly, it's like the dashboard of your car. You can check your oil, you can check your speed, you can check your voltage or whatever else is there. But uh, on your climber's dashboard, it's, are all my crampons in the ice? Is my, uh, do I have uh, a good, is the snow quality good so I can jam my ice axe in there and and help myself? Am I uh, clipped on to the safety loop if that's the case? Uh, so just per- just constantly going over that dashboard of safety, and even then I had a hard time getting down. Mm. And with uh, fatigue, mental acuity, of course, erodes too. Absolutely. So these individuals, also, even though they want to, they, they're kind of their mind is gone. Exactly, and on Everest, which is a little bit unique, there's uh, on the summit of, of uh, Everest, there's only one third of the oxygen that we have at sea level. So. Uh, th- that's the that's the big killer up there is because and that's a reason that people get frostbite and because uh, the lack of oxygen does funny things to the body so essentially when we're up there we're not making good decisions anyway we're essentially like slow five-year-olds mentally mm. so you really have to be aware of that and then check and recheck your mental focus every second so that's what I did. Uh, well, can, awesome. Before we move on, can I share one little story, though? Absolutely, before, Tim. Before going to the summit, I had an amazing experience. I was washing my socks at base camp. And uh, let me tell you, they were pretty fetid. I will say that. Mm-hmm. So I'm washing my socks, and, and it's freezing water because all our water at base camp comes out of frozen, ice-chunked uh, glacier meltwater. So I'm, my hands are freezing, I'm washing my socks, my fingers are numb, and I was struck with this feeling that was just so calming. It was like a bright light was over my head, and it was such a feeling of calm, and I was like, I looked around, I was like, where is this feeling coming from? I had no idea initially, and then I realized what it was. Do you think your listeners want to know what that was? You go for it, sir. Yes, I do. What it was, was that uh, the feeling that washed over me came from the fact that I could do more. I could do no more. I had done my best over the previous year in training and with my family and with my business and my headspace. I had done everything that I could possibly do. That was the cause of that wonderful feeling. And let me tell you, that feeling is awesome. And I encourage all your listeners and you, Dr. Ken, to go for that feeling. Do your absolute best. And it seems like a very simplistic thing, but it's, it, it really is magic. So I, I, I always ask myself, am I doing my best? And whatever I'm doing mm-hmm. in the instant Am I doing my best? And and from that and and I have that 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 memory of of that washing my socks and having that feeling uh, to really anchor myself with. And one of the best ways that you can do your best to know you're doing your best is each morning prioritize your day. Just do three, four, five prioritized actions that you want to get done in the day. So if you're having your coffee first thing in the morning, do that little prioritization. 
And that nearly guarantees that you're going to be doing your best each day. Mm. So did I plan my day? Did I even focus on it? And then paying attention to it. The other one that seems to, Tim, on this is that you're able to kind of let go because a lot of people continue to badger themselves uh, where I did my best, but then they don't even accept that. And that's, right. that's a burden on their mindset, correct? Uh, that, very much so. Okay, good. Well, thank you for that story on Everest. And of course, you, you continued on, and you and I both um, agree that the health condition of the developed world and the developing world is pathetic. There are many reasons for it. Uh, we don't want to get into uh, just the conspiracy of processed food and pharmaceuticals and all that kind of stuff and where we've gotten away from our roots and have growing up in a dairy farm and just um, having natural sort of garden-based foods and stuff like that, we're really kind of messed up. And then we have social media and distractions, all those things. So you wrote this book, Feet, Fork, and Fun. And you talk about, you know, in the back of the book, uh, you know, what's the prerequisite, and welcome to my dyslexia, right, uh, for super fitness. So let's just uh, free flow it, Tim, and say, what, you know, what is it that you, you know, some of the core things out of this book that you can share with the listeners, and if they want to get your book, uh, we will um, give you an opportunity to share that a little bit later about how they can get a hold of you. Okay. Well, let's just start with the title. Feet, Fork, and Fun represent the three dimensions of, of our life as human beings. Feet, in order for health, we need, to have, we need to move our body somewhat. Our body was made to move, hence mm. that's the feet part. Uh, we, we can't just sit behind a desk and sit all day and then go and drive in our car and sit in our car and sit at work and, and then come home and sit in front of the TV and, and, hope to, and do that seven days a week and hope to have a healthy life. Our body was made to move. Mm. So most people accept that. And, and then fork. Fork is the chemical dimension of the body which is what we do and do not put into the body. So you, you want to put good stuff in, you don't want to put bad stuff in. So as simple as that, our nutrition and our chemical balance is, is a huge component of our, of our health and wellness. Mm. And then we have the, the last one, the fun, is the mental aspect of health. And I find that that is supremely important. We've, we've kind of shared just a few things about climbing Everest and, and, uh, and things there that were more mind oriented and my my headspace oriented than uh, most people think most people think that if you go to Everest it's just a okay put one foot in front of the other and it's a physical thing and you have to work out a lot blah 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 but no like everything else in mm -hmm. mental thing it's a, the biggest challenge is in ment in the mental dimension hence that's the third the the fun aspect of the book great so if you were to take us through sort of the framework of your book and each of the steps in it, uh, and, you know, we have just a few minutes, sort of uh, 15 minutes left, what would you, what can you share with the listeners today so that they really can uh, have an amazing life as well based in these three categories? Well, if you remember way back when, when we first started, I said I, did, I figured out I was going to be a chiropractor in one second and how mm. important the motion is. You know, I was just turning the, the doorknob to my chiropractor's office, maybe my second or third visit, and I was like, boom, I'm going to be a chiropractor. So I think one of the things is in realizing the importance of the moment. So it, it, I share a, a question that every person should ask themselves throughout the day, and it's a very, very powerful question. And it's what would serve me best right now? And one of the things I've noticed in my practice and with just people that I coach and speak with and present to is that they've kind of lost, they're living either in the past or mm. their brain is focused on the future and they're not so much focused on what's happening right now, which is all we really have. And again, mm. if you overly focus on the past, then you're depressed. And if you overly focus on the future, well, that's called anxiety. And so we're, the only place that we really exist is in the present. So if people constantly ask themselves in the health realm, 
what would serve me best now? I believe that people would be making better choices. I don't think it's a lack of of knowledge that people are are not as healthy as they mm-hmm. should be. It's a lack of it's it's a it's disconnect of the present. So let me give you an example. Well, I just want to stop you there because what I do is I just sort of bring in some insights you share for the listeners, Tim. You said in the beginning of this interview that you had all these chiropractic patients that wouldn't change their behavior to make their life better. Is this what we're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So let's just talk about, uh, so in an average day, and, and again, these people are, are disconnected from the present. This is what my, this is, this is the reason I was inspired to write the book. And so, okay, how can I help people connect back to the, to the moment? And, hence, and that's why I came up with that question to ask yourself all day, what would serve me best now? So if you're at work, or let's just say you get up in the morning and you ask the question, what would serve me best now? And you're, you have some health goals. Maybe you want to lose some weight or just be healthier or, you know, keep up with your grandkids or whatever. Um, you have some, some intentions. You have some goals in, in that regard. So maybe you, you are finally going to park a little bit away from your front door so you can walk a little bit further. And you're not going to take that Uber to, to lunch, you're going to walk that distance. So maybe in the feet realm of the average day, you're going to move your body a little bit more if you ask yourself that, that important question, what would serve me best? And when people bring in that big birthday cake into work or the, or the dozen donuts into work, and if you ask yourself, what would serve me best now, you may not have that donut. You may reach into your bag of, of, uh, of raw almonds and you might have a handful of almonds and you might pass on that birth cake, birthday cake. So you're going to, what am I, my point is, is you're going to make different decisions if you're focused on the present and if you ask yourself that, that supremely important question, what would serve me best right now? Mm. So actually just being conscious and there's many books out there that say, be here now. Right. And the big thing in coaching, of course, is this thing called mindfulness. Right. Actually, am I even here now? <laughs> and with right. digital distractions, most people are not, are they? No, no, we're distracted from the present for sure. Okay, so what would serve me best and what would be the best decision right now? So I do that. So then what are some of the other strategies? You talk about sort of the number one sort of mindset or uh, fitness uh, and success, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, if I could just share one thing that's in my head right now, um, and it's in all your heads too and all your listeners' heads, the importance of the brain. The brain is much like a muscle. And in that, you know, our, our muscle, if you're thinking about your biceps, you can get your biceps more in shape by doing a bunch of curls and blah, blah, blah. You can work that muscle and it can be a healthier, happier muscle by focusing some exercise on it. But a lot of times we're not exercising our brain. And so part of my philosophy in here, a great deal of the, of the, the book, and, and actually in each chapter I have a brain train activity in each chapter of the book because it's so important to treat your brain as a muscle, muscle and, and expand it and exercise it because it's the master controlling organ of the body. The, it's part of the central nervous system with the brain and the spinal cord. That is the master controlling the main organ of the body and we're not exercising it enough and that's part of the reason that we're not as healthy as we should be too. And, and if I could add one more thing there too, uh, that I, I, I do a lot of uh, uh, interviews and, and, uh, and presentations. And I was out in Indiana and I was giving this presentation to this guy and uh, I followed his career after a while and he had lost like 245 pounds. Wow. And, I asked, and I asked him, how'd you do it? What, what, would, would, what was it? And he very insightfully said, well, I, put, I finally put emotion behind it. And he described the story of his young daughter who couldn't, when he was really, really big, she couldn't get her arms nearly around him at all. She couldn't hug him. Mm. And it broke his heart. And they laughed a little bit about it, but inside it was killing him as he, as he described it. And so he, his goal became, I want to shrink up my body so my daughter can get her arms around me to hug me. 
Mm. And that mental picture and that emotion was game over for him. He quickly dropped that 245 pounds because it wasn't about like, a you know, I want to lose 245 pounds. Who cares? But when he put emotion behind it, something that he could just that never left him. Mm. That it was game over. It, that was his Mount Everest, and it was game over. He was at the top in, uh, of Everest. So it was but, interesting, Tim, because a lot of other individuals and ourselves included will say that the reverse is true in terms of people gaining weight is that they have an, an emotional dysfunction that contributes to the eating. So, so the game can go both ways. It certainly can. Okay, it certainly well, can. That's all. Thank you for that. Issue. Now, do you have any other uh, sort of brain? Uh, exercises, activities that you can share just off the top of your head with the listeners. When you talk about mindfulness and you, t- you know, we and brain exercise, and we 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 hear so much about the importance of meditation in today's world. It's just everywhere, and everybody you need to meditate. If you meditate, your blood pressure goes down, and and all that. It's it's great, but. I think that that people uh, think that it's so complicated that they can't do it or they do it Mm. for a short period of time and they're distracted and they look at their cell phone and blah, 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 blah. The point is, is just being aware of the moment is meditation. So again, we're back to the moment. Mm. Being aware of the present, I think, will take the anxiety out of meditation and the more time you can spend there, hey, the better. But if it's only one second and you realize, hey, where am I and what am I doing? Oh, I'm here. I'm here now. It's the moment. I'm going to be in the moment. That's meditation. That's mindfulness. And that's a start. And that's going to quiet the chattering monkeys that exist in our brain. Thank you, Tim. You're welcome. So so when, in addition to that... Uh, you know, you have this component on fork. What would you be able to share with us today that would help the listeners around the fork side of our life? Well, on the fork side, and again, this is the nutrition side, and I, and, and the importance of that is 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 uh, that that dimension of our life is super important because that's our chemical dimension of our life, and it makes sense to me that our DNA of our body, uh, the building block of our humanity, our, D- our, our DNA, has been around for about 50,000 years. And that scientists pretty much uh, all agree on that. Uh, but our lifestyle has significantly changed from 50,000 years ago. Would you agree with that? <laughs> well, yeah, even uh, even 100 years ago, right, Tim? Yeah, yeah. I think just the cell phones from 50,000 years ago were significantly bigger, I think, if I'm not Yeah, they were yeah, yeah, just yeah. throwing boulders across the, uh, exactly. the, the uh, ravine. Yeah, exactly, right, rolling them over on, uh, on, on the nearest deer or something. Uh, but so the, the, what were we eating when we were hunter-gatherers 50,000 years ago? Well, we had good quality protein. We probably got some good fish out of the river, and we got some, you know, pretty healthy uh, 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 buffalo meat there, maybe, and uh, some good quality protein. And we gathered nuts and fruits and uh, and some and vegetables, whatever we could we could hunt and gather. So really, so we have the DNA of a hunter gatherer. But we live in a world right now where Cheetos are just as, as you can get a bag of Cheetos to watch the, the game very, very easily. Mm. So the, what we need to do is live our life, our, 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 our nutritional life and our physical life and our mental life like a hunter-gatherer. So we have to, again, we have to just move our body and we have to hunt and gather in today's supermarket so we feed our DNA and our cells the way they were designed to be treated, mm. which is, again, good quality protein, vegetables and fruit, and uh, not any, and minimize absolutely the, uh, the, 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 the food that is really just not live food and is just synthetic and uh, created in laboratories. Uh, Tim, so what would you say? Dram- Go ahead. Nothing that's dramatic that, that, that's, that, that, that most people don't know is just about living in the moment and making those choices. Most people know that that's the way they should eat. So mm-hmm. that's kind of more of the paleo, if people have heard about the paleo method of nutrition. 
Uh, I, if you read my, that second chapter, the fourth chapter of my book, you'll realize that it's kind of a combination between paleo and the Mediterranean uh, style of eating. And by the way, I never tout diets. I don't like diets. I don't think diets are a good idea. Uh, if they worked, then everybody would be perfectly healthy and at the perfect weight and all that. But it's lifestyle. So it's what you do most of the time that counts. It's not a short-term anything. And by the way, I don't, I don't even recommend that people count calories. I think that if people concentrate on, on eat, putting good stuff in the, in the hopper, that good things are going to happen as a result. So, as many uh, people will call it, Tim, real food. Uh, real stuff. Uh, Tim, what would you say? There, there's not many, but there would be a few listeners who are vegan or vegetarian. How do you uh, deal with that in terms of their protein sources? What do you recommend to them? Um, I, I, beans generally are, are pretty good. I do kind of stay away from soy. Uh, so I'm not, I don't recommend soy that much because there's, some, there's been some studies that kind of raise the cancer risk for men and women with soy products. So I minimize those. But uh, if you're vegan, then there's plenty of awesome bean dishes that you can use out there. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. And then the, the last one that you were talking about in, in is fun. You right. mean you actually were allowed to have fun in life? What, do, what are you talking about by fun? Uh, well, you know, I'm talking about... Uh, <laughs> and I'm well, being facetious, of course. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, I think it's probably the most important thing. It's about focusing on, uh, on, the, on the moment and it's thinking well. And if I could just leave a... Uh, can I give you a quote from Emily Dickinson that I have in the book? Absolutely. The soul should always... Let me start again. The soul should always stand ajar, ready to welcome the ecstatic experience. So I, I just think that's a dramatic, uh, and I kind of lead on the uh, chapter eight, thinking well, uh, with that quote. Um, and there's, you know, fun is, I think, uh, misunderstood. So one of the things I share in there is that uh, most people think that it, they should have fun all the time. Well, there's different types of fun. Like there's, you know, you could say, well, Mount Everest isn't climbing, isn't fun. And I'm, I could tell you with all... Uh, honesty that it's a miserable experience, but I knew that the fun would happen because I would appreciate the experience for the rest of my life. But there was mm. nothing fun about climbing Mount Everest. So there, there's different types of fun. Great. Well, I only if we think about it, uh, Tim, uh, there are a lot of uh, unfortunately miserable, grumpy people out there. And they haven't figured out that they are affecting their immunity system. As you said in your first climb in Everest, my mindset affected my bodies and the result, you know, my responses of my system. You know, if we were to, to capture this, and Tim, you have just so much uh, wisdom for the, for the listeners. But if you had two or three sort of final comments for the listeners of do this and it's going to contribute to your success in life, what would you say to them? I would say there, there's a, in climbing, there's a, uh, there's a technique called the dyno. And the dyno is when you're kind of in a stuck place climbing. You're usually in rock climbing. And you either have to go for it or you're going to fall. So mm. a dyno means just kind of even jumping, leaping off a hold on the rock to get to another area. That's called a dyno. Mm. And it's kind of, it's just the last thing you're going to do. And I think that the dyno should be done about five times a year to be maximally healthy. And that means because we humans, and for whatever it is, we get bored easy and we get complacent easily. So about five times a year or about every 70 days, you need to drastically change what you do or how you go about it. So it might mean just, you know, reading a, a, a different book um, and focusing on a different thing or starting, hey, I want to do a 5K, so I'm going to just, uh, you know, go online and, and get a workout routine for, for doing a 5K or I'm going to take this class or I'm finally going to go and do yoga or I'm going to learn to sew. All those things being drastically possibly different than what you've done before is a dyno. And I think that is massively important for mental health, mental and physical health to realize that you have to do constantly things different 
uh, and f- certainly five times a, a year is, is a necessary thing to shake up your life. Hugely important. Great, great idea, Tim. Now, before we end the show, how can people find out more about you and then just give them the titles of both your books and where they might be able to find out more about you or, and or get your books? Okay. Uh, both of my books are available on Amazon, so you can just search under the uh, just search under Dr. Tim Warren, and it'll pop up what my books are right there. And the first book is Lessons from Everest. It's kind of a philosophical treatise for people who are, you know, some who are climbers and non-climber alike, just to, uh, uh, to really get the philosophical treatise of uh, failing and succeeding on on the mountain and how it relates to their own life. And then the second book is Feet, Fork, and Fun, How to Fail Your Way to Fitness. And uh, by the way, I'm very happy that that book went up to number three on Amazon's bestseller list here earlier this year, and it just went out March 1st. And uh, you can go on to drtimwarren.com, drtimwarren.com. And uh, there is a, I call it the week sheet. You can get a free download at my website that helps you easily follow along and make all the feet, fork, and fun lifestyle changes in your life uh, a week at a time. So you can download that, make uh, a copy each week, and it just makes it really easy to follow the, the advice in my book uh, with, uh, by just sticking this week sheet up on your refrigerator and checking it off. And it'll allow you to climb your own Mount Everest in your in your in your life. Well, thank you, Tim, for that. And you know, Tim, uh, I just really appreciate you as a friend and as a colleague, and all the work that you're doing. That you're um, engaging life so that we can help others to live on purpose, but also just really realize their potential that they have. So, thank you for being a guest on the show today, Doctor Keys. My pleasure. Uh, so much fun to, to hook up with you again. Okay. And I'm sure maybe, maybe we'll do an event together, some kind of where I'm going to do a dyno with you and get outside of the mm-hmm. box. So uh, this is uh, publicly recorded. So we'll, now I'm going to have to be accountable for it. Well, listeners, I thank you for, uh, you know, spending the most valuable, precious commodity that you have with us today. And that's your time. But I encourage that you would take some of the things that Tim is talking about and start really realizing your potential. You know, if it's moving and moving your feet, or if it's really paying attention to your fork, or is it having fun in life, you know, being miserable, why would you want to do that? And the key thing that Tim was talking about, about visualizing your future, and how does that work for you? Now, as I ask at the end of every show, I just appreciate that you've spent the time with us. If you like what we're doing, uh, just give us some, uh, post some remarks on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're listening to this. If you uh, like it, share it with your colleagues, with your friends. And we thank you for participating today. Uh, you've been listening to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.